in three, two, one. Ready to improve your customer service, increase sales, enhance your marketing, automate repetitive tasks, and streamline your business operations? ChatGBT is the fastest growing consumer application in history, hitting 100 million users in just a few months. To help us understand how we can use ChatGBT for competitive advantage and streamline our workflows is author, speaker, and transformation advisor, James Feldman. Well, hey, Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Hey, we're delighted to have you. Now, where are we speaking to you from today? Are you still in Windy City? I am downtown Chicago, yes. Great town. Lots of good restaurants, great sports teams. Are you a Sox fan or are you a Cubby? You know, I'm not a sports fan at all. I am a restaurant person. So for me, I get very involved in sports when someone is in the final playoffs. So I can sound like I know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, I don't follow it. Otherwise, it's down to Ditka's for a steak and maybe watch the playoffs or the finals or something. (laughs) So it's all good. Hey, we're delighted to have you on board. And today we're going to be talking about a number of different things, primarily though, chat GBT. And you are a strategist. You are a professional speaker. You've been a trainer and a coach for years. You've probably been doing it as long as we have. You are the author of Shift Happens. And basically, you're now using AI as a transformation medium and tool. So we want to explore that. But you've got a varied background as an entrepreneur and as a professional speaker and coach. Let's back up just a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Jim. Where did he come from? Well, I guess the first one would be at seven years old, I went to my mother, asked her for an allowance. She said, go talk to your father. So I went to my father. He said, go talk to your mother. So I learned my first business lesson, get all the decision makers in the room at the same time. The second thing is when they say no, ask them for suggestions. What will they accept? So the two of them said, well, you know, you could mow the yard, you could wash the car, you could walk the dog, you could open up a lemonade stand. Okay, lemonade stand sounded interesting. I remember walking outside, it was over 100 degrees, and as far as the eye could see, I could see lemonade stands on every single driveway up and down the street. Well, I decided there was too much competition. I went back inside, thought about it for a while, came out, talked to my mother and said, next time you're going to Shoppers World, which was a precursor to a Sam's Club or a Costco, it was a big box store. I priced out bulk lemonade, bulk sugar, bulk paper cups and bulk Ziploc bags. And I created mom's lemonade kit. And at night when it was cool out, I'd knock on the door and I go, hi, Mrs. Smith. I see your daughter's got a lemonade stand. I'd like to save you a trip to the store just to get more product. How many of these would you like? This one takes care of 10 glasses, 20 glasses, 50 glasses, et cetera. So by the end of the summer, at seven years old, I had $351 in the bank. And that was my first business. And that was, we won't date you, but that was back then when that was actually- That was actually serious money, yes. That, that was serious money. That's, well, that's hilarious. I had a similar story. My parents were immigrants and they said, hey, you go out and work as soon as you can. And so I went and rented a rototiller. And then I went around the neighborhood and said, you need your garden rototillered. And they all did it. And I charged them 35 to $50 each for a garden. So at the end of the week, I was doing two, three a day. And I was using other people's equipment in order to do that. I had to supply the labor and take care of it. The same story. And once you start to earn some of those things on your own, that probably was the catalyst that started for you. Because you had other businesses as well. You started looking at other money-making opportunities. You got a great story about the train. And maybe just summarize that, the contents of the train. What's inside the train? And how so can I... Tra- when I yeah. was in law school, we had study groups. And one of the fellows in the study group calls up and said, Listen, I know you're hosting it this week, but I can't make it because I have to go adjust a railroad car. I didn't know what that meant. 
I said, what did you tell me? He says, I have to adjust a railroad car. I said, I'm still not following. He goes, I'm an insurance adjuster. Oh, well, I got to go with you. So we go to the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad switching yard, which is dozens of acres of railroad cars. And we find this railroad car. And we find it's got a padlock. So we got to go back, find a bolt cutter, open it up. And it's filled with number 10 restaurant-sized cans of Chef Boyardee spaghetti sauce. Now we're standing there looking at it. It's 100 plus degrees. And I said, what are you going to do with this? Because I have no idea. I said, but you guys lost this railroad car. How do you lose a railroad car? Well, once you understand that when the railroad cars go into a switching yard, they get moved around. Everything was tracked by clipboard and it was manual. There were no computers at the time. So it was easy to lose one because there were thousands of railroad cars. So we're standing there looking at it. I said, how much do you think is in here? He didn't have a manifest. He didn't have an idea. So we went and got this big tape measure and we figured out that the railroad car was 60 feet long, 20 feet high and 4.8 and a half inches wide. We took the size of the can, did the quick calculation, and I came up with 33,000 of pasta sauce. I said, what do you take for all this? He goes, five grand. Done. He says, you're serious? I said, absolutely. It's mine. Had to go to the bank to borrow the money because I didn't have five grand. The bank wanted all my photography equipment because they thought this was the stupidest thing they ever heard of, that a guy that didn't know what he was doing just bought a railroad car filled with pasta sauce. And you were doing photography at the time to pay your way. Correct. That's how I was paying for law school. Yeah. Yeah. So the next morning, phone rings. Spellman, Tim Schmidt, Atchison, Topeka, Santa Fe Railroad. Did you buy a railroad car, MDW 1960? Yes, I did. Yeah, thanks. Move it. Move it. What do you mean, move it? Am I not speaking English? Move it. It's your railroad car. Get it off of our railroad tracks. Uh, how do I do that? He says, you mean you don't have a locomotive? No. You don't have a caboose? No. You don't have an engineer? No. You don't have the easement rights? No. He goes, well, what were you thinking? I said, truth of the matter is I hadn't even thought about this. So he said, tell you what, I'm going to be off this weekend. I'm taking a couple of personal days, figure it out by Wednesday. So I went back to my study group. I got some beer. I got some pizza. And I said, listen, before we start the study group, let's play a what if game. What if you had all this pasta sauce? And we started thinking, where was it going? Uh, Military bases. Wow. Good idea. Prisons. Terrific idea. Universities. I love that idea. Other food distributors, great. Monday, I'm on the phone. I call the closest military base. The guy says, what's the expiration code? Uh, I'll call you back. Back in the car, back go looking for the railroad car. They'd moved it out of the way. It took me almost all day to find it. I find where the product code is. I come back. It's almost the end of the day altogether. I get a hold of the guy, I give him the product code. He says, oh, it's good for about another year, year and a half. He says, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Right now, $2 a gallon. Done. $66,000. I owe the bank five. I'm making 61000 He goes, okay, we have a deal. I go, absolutely. He goes, what's your GSA number? Your GSA number, government supply number. You got to have one. I can't buy Uh-oh. anything. Yeah. Okay. I'll mail you the forms. You mail them to Washington. Washington gives you a number. I said, listen, I got to have this done in a couple of days. I can't buy anything without a GSA number. Same thing with prisons because they're federally operated. Same thing with many universities and so forth. So all the places I thought they were going to, roadblocks because I didn't have a GSA number. So instead, I figured if I can't sell it where it's going to, I'll sell it back to who's making it. So I get a hold of the company. I get to the product manager. The product manager is in meeting. I get this young lady on the phone. She says, listen, I don't know he's going to be done. I said, put me on hold. She said, it could be a long time. I said, put me on hold. Meantime, she and I strike up a conversation and she goes, well, what do you want this for? 
And I sort of came up with a little white story. And I said, uh, I'm doing this research, trying to figure out the manufactured cost of a commodity product through the distribution channels to the end user. She goes, well, maybe I can help. This is not where I normally work, but it's the end of the quarter. And there's a report here. Let me see if I can find it for you. And she comes back and she goes, yes, here it is. It looks like all in. It's $3 a gallon. All right. I wait for the guy. He gets on the phone. He says, I understand you've been on hold 45 minutes. What do you want? I said, I have some of your pasta sauce. He says, we don't want some. And I said, I got a lot. He says, how much do you have? I said, about 33,000 gallons. All right, you got my attention. What's the product code? Ah, I have the answer. He says, all right, we'll give you a buck and a half. What do you mean? No, no. Now, here was my logic. If he's willing to give me a buck and a half, which I had figured from the beginning, why don't I up it just a little bit? And make it a dollar sixty-five. He's not going to walk away from that. Extra fifteen cents. But fifteen cents times thirty-three—that is a lot of money. Cover your stake. Yeah. He said, "Do we have a deal now?" I said, "Almost." And the almost was this. And this is the important lesson for your listeners. What was the value of the box car? And that's how moving forward, I've come up with think inside the box because the box car had value, and at the time. That boxcar was worth about $75,000. So I sold it to him for another $35,000, bringing my gross higher than what I had for the original deal with the military base. And then I went back to the fellow that took me there and I gave him $5,000. He was dancing in the street. He goes, why are you doing this? I said, because if you ever need to adjust another railroad car, you're going to call me because I'm the only guy that gave you five grand. Brilliant. And then I went to the switching yard guy and I said, thank you for being Joe Dranus and letting me stay here. Here's 5,000. There's probably other insurance adjustment guys running around here. You tell them you got a buyer. And he goes, are you kidding me? You're giving me $5,000? Absolutely. And so that year, Michael, I ended up buying 11 more boxcars. Amazing story. See, it opened up. And that's what kind of was the impetus for you starting to think inside the box. And we've always been told for decades, hey, we need to think outside the box, everybody. Think outside the box. And there's a problem. You've identified a problem with that, and it's about perspectives. So if you imagine, and you know, I remember watching one of your programs where you actually hold up a box. And if you're looking at that box, you're seeing it from an outside perspective. You're seeing all the different angles to it, but you have no idea what's in the box. And that's what kind of started this whole process for you, wasn't it? And you created what we call the 3Ds. Tell our listeners about the 3Ds and how they apply. So if you think about the box and the box is the metaphor for the problem and you're outside, you can't identify the problem. So you have to go inside the box. And I refer to that as the depth. You go in and you identify the components that make up the problem and you move them out of the shadows because often you can see simple math. If I remove one, or if I double up on one, or if I divide it or multiply it, it often reveals the solution. The second thing is if you're using the metaphor of inside the box, you look 360 degrees at the marketplace. Does anybody care? Does anybody willing to pay you for this identification of a problem and the fact that you can solve it? If they're not willing to pay you for it, then it's just becoming another hobby and you should walk away. And that's where most people get stuck. Well, I've already invested this time, but nobody's willing to pay you for it. And I often say the bigger the problem you solve, the more money you can charge for it. So the last part is the determination. Do you have the bandwidth? Do you have the resources? Can you execute? So it's depth, distance, and determination. And the symbol that I came up with was the pyramids. They're equal-sided. A stool, three-legged stool. If you remove one leg, it falls down. So depth, distance, and determination require you to equally 
value all three of those Ds for your deliverables. And that's where the strength comes from, is from that equality within the side. Sure. Now, when it comes to thinking inside the box, that can be used for all kinds of things. So we want to look at the perspective from an outside point of view as just another perspective. But by applying the 3Ds, we can kind of get into it there and whether you're solving that issue. And you have a great formula for solving an issue and for evaluating that process. I thought you're really generous in your stuff that you put out on the internet where you've got different steps in your process. So we identify the problem, do some analysis of the problem. What are the issues? What are possible solutions? What are the resources you need? And you go through a whole spectrum of what you can do to solve some issues. And from an entrepreneurial point of view, or people looking to get a side gig going or start their own business, it's really the formula. Because if you look at the disruptors of the world, you look at the people who have gone on to just, they've disrupted by solving major problems. I mean, as far as their thinking goes. And that's now led you to where, obviously you've worked with different businesses, different organizations. I know you have enterprise clients as well, and they think a little differently. How can the small business entrepreneur, how can corporations employ that today? What's the best strategy for them to employ that? The good news is there's a new toy out there called AI. And the AI is really think inside the box on steroids. If I had had that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, You probably wouldn't be talking to me because uh, I would be with Branson and Elon Musk counting my billions of dollars. So today, if you're not using the AI tools because you're afraid that they're going to replace you, stop worrying about it. AI tools are not going to replace you. But the person or organization that is using AI tools is going to replace you. So you've got to adapt to this new technology. This is not something let's sit around and see if it's a fad. It is electricity. It is the way smartphones disrupted our life. It is fire to the caveman. And you can sit back and watch, but I'm telling you the train is leaving the station and you better be on that train or it's not something you're going to easily catch up on. Because when I first got involved with AI, I said, you know, it's changing every 30 days, 60 days. Right now, it's probably changing every three or four days. And I see changes taking place within the same day Mm -hmm. because every company in some form or fashion is adapting their business model to engage these amazing tools. And people are going, well, it's going to take this job or that job. It's not going to take the job because so far, AI is this great assistant, but it cannot make decisions. It can give you information. It's unemotional and it doesn't check itself. So at the very least, you owe it to trust, but verify. And you want to look at what your competitor is doing. So I have a process. First of all, I have found ChatGPT is my go-to. That's not to say you can't use Jasper or Watson or some of the others, but ChatGPT, because it's got the most users, it's got the most people behind it doing things. The second part of it, is pay the $20. The difference between the free and the 20 is the difference between driving a Porsche and getting on a rocket ship. You know, I've often said, if somebody offers you a trip to the moon, don't ask what seat it is, just get on it. This is what ChatGPT is all about. And to use ChatGPT, you write what's called a prompt. And a prompt is the instructions. So people struggle with this. This is where people give up on it. So let me make it real easy for you. Number one, name ChatGPT. It's your new assistant. So my assistant started off as Boris, came from Rocky and Bull. 
But people my age knew it, but people younger than me didn't get it. And I was spending a lot of time explaining who Boris was. So I said, okay, Boris, you're going to step aside. I need to come up with something. Everybody knows what it is. And I came up with Mr. Spock. Everybody knows who Mr. Spock is in some form or fashion. So my assistant is named Mr. Spock. Now, if I had just hired Mr. Spock, I wouldn't walk and dump a bunch of things on his desk and say, go find the solution. I would train Mr. Spock. And that's what you have to do with ChatGPT. You have to train it. And once you start training it, it learns. And while it is not emotional, as I said, and it's not making decisions, as I said, it starts to understand what you want. And the more you talk to it, like it's an assistant, the better the responses are. That's a great example of that. And AI has been around for a long time. People don't realize I grew up using slide rolls. And then in college, we came out with calculators. Well, calculator was your first AI tool. And we could also do this math. And we had to go into tests and take the test manually. We couldn't use any electronics whatsoever. And that Texas instrument came out. And that was, you know, a program, right? And if you think about it, Siri, Alexa, and probably going to send off some alarms right now for people listening to the podcast. Those are all artificial intelligence. And so they keep learning and they keep keep getting better and offering suggestions. They keep offering you suggestions on what you can do. And ChatGBT, it grew so fast. I know when it first came out, it was one of the fastest growing platforms. And as of March of this year, it had over 100 million users just within a few months. Within five days, it already had more than all the other social platforms when they first started. So people were driving to this. But again, people don't know how to use it. And the actual name, from what I understand, is the GBT Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So I can see why they said whatever that means. Like, I like your name. Let's call it Spock or call it whatever you want to call it, but it's a mouthful. But it really does work well. But the prompts are really the key to this whole thing because it's the old garbage in, garbage out. I say garbage prompts in, you get garbage results or outcomes out. And so by experimenting with it, you're just going to get better and better with it. Now, the first application, and I agree with you, they're tools. The people who are going to get hurt the worst on this probably are going to be white-collar jobs because your blue-collar jobs are going to still be doing them. But white-collar jobs, lawyers, you know, we know ChatGBT passed all the bar exams with 90% or better. You went to school for a number of years. You take the test, take the bar. It passes it just because it's read so much of the internet, right? It knows which case studies, case laws. But again, you got to know how to ask it things. You have to know how to position it. Documents, writing. We're both writers. We write books. It's great. All of a sudden, I might have five ideas, but I want two more. I'll submit the five, come up with some ideas, and it comes back to me with other variables and information. What are the top 10? And subjects that are affecting CFOs at this moment. It will actually come back. And to your point, trust and verify. You can go back and fact check it, make sure, because there are things that can go wrong with it and some false information with it as well. What are the mistakes that you see that some people or businesses or corporations make when trying to employ ChatGPT as part of a tool within their arsenal? Number one, they ask the wrong questions. If it's the old story, as you said before, you ask the wrong questions, it doesn't matter what the answer is because it's going to be wrong. It's going to be wrong. So so I kind of go back to the original basis of almost all businesses. What is it that you do? Who are you? Who's your target audience? What is the problem that you solve and how do you solve it? And if you don't know that, you can have that dialogue, but you got to remember that ChatGPT itself was not connected to the internet. And so it was built on a database that was going backwards. But because Microsoft invested over $10 billion, they put it in July and the bad guys started running with it faster than the good guys. So the lawyers at Microsoft pulled it back out and recently it now is back in again. 
However, as my friend likes to say, however, you don't get access to it unless you're using four. And when you enable it, which you have to do, it isn't automatic, it unhooks all the other prompts. So you have a trade-off now. So now you have to go in and you have to make a decision. How are you going to use it to search the internet? So I typically start with the regular prompts because those prompts are so powerful. And then if I need research or I need statistics or I need verification, I will continue and go out to the internet using the Bing, which is now connected to chat, have it do my research, bring it back into chat, and then go back in the chat and have it refine it and use it to build my best case or best use response. Brilliant. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with James Feldman. Now, there's other applications you can do it. So we've got content creation. Obviously, we can create articles or posts or blog posts or, you know, based on information that you're going to have. And it will use proper, most of the time it does good grammar. I've actually had it gone and created different articles with it. And then I've run them through the grammar checkers. And there's a few things it could fix up. But then I also run it through the plagiarizer and it comes back 100% clean. And which is amazing to me, considering all the different prompts. If you and I put in the same prompt, we're going to get similar information back. But just the way it phrases it seems to have an awareness about it and put it into context of what you're asking. Email communication. I have it on my email and communication tools where if all of a sudden it comes in, I get an email, I can quickly just hit, I'm interested, no thanks, whatever, just a quick prompt. And it comes back with a beautiful email. Marketing campaigns, cold outreach, employee training, creating presentations. And actually, I just saw something recently that you'd sent out where you use it for creating presentations and topics for those who are professional speakers or are looking for a topic for a workshop or whatever. Maybe give a quick breakdown of how they might employ it in that situation or internally within a business or a corporation. Well, again, there are now thousands of prompts out there. And so you just find somebody to help you with the prompt and you can use it to fill out RPs if that's what you're prone to do because it's now connected to the internet. You can go out and search for opportunities to speak. But remember, everybody else is doing the same thing. So you still have to come up with a very competitive differentiation on what you do differently to get the business. So from my standpoint, one of the things that I emphasize is that I interview people prior to the meeting and I find out what's keeping them awake at night. And a lot of speakers don't do that. The second thing that I do is I customize. I customize every single presentation. If you customize and you start to learn the language of the audience, it gives you a lot of credibility. So in my typical presentation, I'm using their buzzwords 
and I'm quoting some of their thought leaders, and you can see the audience go, the man did his homework. Right. He may not be from our industry, but you wouldn't know it based on what he's been able to impart in the way of identifying the problem and an actionable solution. You're delivering your frameworks, but then you're seasoning it with their language, their kind of seasoning. Because I saw one presentation that you did, and you talk about all businesses are the same. Or what do you know about our business? Or we're looking for someone who's experienced in our industry. And I have to agree with you 100%. I've not seen one that's, they're all unique. They're the same. They're unique. But if they sell something, somebody has to buy something. That process is the same. No matter what, people make their buying decisions, as you know, with emotion and logic. And sometimes we have to look at how are we actually selling? Are we sucked into the logic vortex or are we triggering those buying emotions? But at the end of the day, all business seems the same to me. I always tell my clients and everybody else, it's never price. It's price when you become a commodity. Let me give you my, my favorite example. God forbid you're at a doctor's exam and he says, you have a brain tumor. We need to operate right away. Is the first words out of your mouth, I got to send out three RFPs and I'm going to go to the low cost provider? No, no, those are not your questions. Your questions are, how long have you been doing it? How experienced are you? How many people came out with the same faculties they went in with? And then you figure <laughs> yeah, out right. when you can get booked. Right. And never care about price. Oh, Jim, that's not true. Okay, let's try it a different way. You go into a Mercedes or BMW dealership. Do they show you the cheapest car, or the most expensive car? The most expensive car. Well, I can't afford that $200,000 car. Oh, really? What would you like for me to get rid of? You don't want the sunroof? Okay. You don't want the GPS? Okay. You don't want the heated seats? Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. I need all that. Well, you've talked yourself right back into that expensive car. And their answer is, what could you afford monthly? Or what do you need By on a trade-in? You yeah. help reduce the pain point so that you can drive it. Now, if you think about it, a car is a depreciating asset. Everybody buying a car should be buying a car that's a year or two old because all the depreciation took place or the bulk of it when it left the showroom. But people don't think that way. Oh, I get a warranty. I get this. Yes. And you get a huge bill. I have always said to my dealers, that auto dealers, your money isn't in the new car business. Your money is in the parts and service and the used car business because you're the only one that can repair it or you're the only one that has that two-year-old car that's got 3,000 miles that was never driven in the snow and the rain and everything else, and you can make more money off of it. So when I'm dealing with anybody, I basically say, do you know where you're making the most profit? Do you know where you can leverage your competitive differentiation and get paid for it? And so in the speaking business, COVID kind of killed it for most speakers because there was no live meetings. Most speakers didn't have multiple streams of income, and so they started reducing their prices just to be able to pay the rent. Now, the meeting planners have come back spoiled and said, well, I was only paying X. Why should I pay you X plus Y? And you start to explain to them the Ys. And some get it, some don't, but it is starting to slowly come back. But it's like my example with the dentist. You know, you go in to get your cavity filled. Did you want that to hurt? No, right. 
I actually have to see one this afternoon. And you're right, you go in there and you're in there for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and you might have a, a good sized bill. And you're thinking, man, why is this so expensive? But you start to break down those individual components of, do you want us to freeze your mouth or would you like us just to extract that tooth or perform that filling without any freezing or Novocaine? And you're like, well, I'd like the Novocaine or actually nitrous if you have it. And but I prefer that just for anything. Like, well, get my teeth cleaning, put me on the nitrous. I'd, I'd buy the home kit if they'd sell it. But to your point, price is never the issue unless it is the issue. And when it's the issue, it's usually the only issue. And so on the surveys we see, it comes up fourth, it comes up seventh, it comes up ninth. Why did you buy from you? Why did you buy from James Feldman? He gave me the cheapest price. No, and it's never that. And it's really about the value conversation and, and what we add value to that experience. You know, something I always like to do and use is I always like to use the clients or the customers. And you differentiate a client from a customer. A customer is a one-time, they've bought your product or service. A client is someone who repeatedly writes you checks. And you have lots of A-listed type clients who've been with you. And we have some similar clients in there that we both have worked with. But it's really about that value conversation. And we've got to move them off of price because it's not always the issue. And then I like to use the currency of the client. So for instance, if you made bicycles and you fabricated bicycles, I'm going to sell you my services. I'm not going to come back to you with a fee, you know, 20,000, 30,000, whatever the number is going to be. I'm going to do it in terms of bicycles. For us to install the training for you, your investment will be 10 bikes. But we expect to give you a 10x multiple on your bikes minimum. And they're like, they understand bikes. I don't say to my wife, honey, I want to go buy this new Harley. But if I sit there and I say, well, it's only a few gigs or I only have to do this and things, she goes, oh, you do gigs all the time. Okay, so I sell things I want to do in gigs and I use the client's money. I had oil company we sold a big program to. We sold it in barrels of oil. We don't explore, but we saved them 2,000 barrels of oil with our process. They were really happy with that without exploration costs. So using the currency of the client or the customer, what's their currency? They understand that they can relate to and find. So it's to your point, it's getting it off of price and what's that value? Do you really want the cheapest brain surgeon for your kid or do you want this job done and taken care of? So it's all about the priorities. Where do you see it going? People talk about the risks all the time. I listened to an interview with the founders of Google and they were talking about ChatGBT and because Google's got its own artificial intelligence and they're doing their own versions of things as well. And broadcaster interviewer asked the question, hey, what about the dangers of this? What about into the hands of people who do bad things? And he said that it's kind of like any tool. You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. But because there's boundaries around it, we have to have enforcement around those boundaries. Now, anyone who knows what they're doing can go beyond those boundaries and create things. So that's a safeguard. But also from maybe other nations or bad players politically, apparently this takes a lot of power. It takes a lot of electricity, to your point, to really run the systems. So they said they can monitor that. They can monitor third-party countries and build. They know who's consuming electricity. They know where things are coming from. Do you, do you have any worries or concerns other than we should embrace it, obviously, make the tool work for us, but eventually, how's that going to impact us? I have huge worries about it. So during COVID, I was in my bat cave. You're not networking. You're not meeting people. Most of my clients were getting laid off or getting early retirement. So my workload had gone down and I got on dating sites. And I started to realize how many catfishes were out there. Catfishes where someone has taken someone else's picture, pretend to be that profile. With chat and the tools that are out there, that's giving those bad guys some amazing tools because they can create an image that doesn't exist. They can create a profile for somebody that doesn't exist. 
they can go in and find things that you have written that you posted on the internet and start to talk to you in a language as if they were that real person. And ultimately, it impacts everyone from young people to mature people. And so I've actually created a whole new cottage industry for myself called the Romance Scam Expert. And I'm trying to educate people on how to see the red flags because we all like connections. We all are looking for that special someone in our life. But that special someone may not be who you think you're really talking to. So if you're a young person, let's say I'm a teenager and I'm talking to someone and I agree to meet them, you don't know who you're going to be meeting and you are putting yourself in danger. And unfortunately, that danger is real. But young people are kind of with the, hey, you know, I'm omnipotent. This isn't going to happen. But the truth of the matter is the number of young people that are being physically, sexually and verbally abused from meeting people online is growing astronomically. On the flip side are the elderly people who may have lost their significant other that have some additional money, and they get a story of someone who says, I found you, I'd like to move in with you, let's buy a house together, can you make the deposit on the house, etc. And they're scammed out of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. The numbers have grown so much. Let me just give you a couple. The FBI set up a whole department to have people complain about losing money on these various scams. From 2021 back for five years, that totaled a little over $2 billion. The following year, 2022, that totaled a little bit short of $6 billion. And in 2023, and keep in mind we're only in October, it's over $10 billion, and that's just the United States. That's just the people that have reported it. How many people got scammed right. and didn't report it? Too embarrassed, yeah. I, I can't even come up with a number. I think it's a two times, five times easily. And then you say, that's only U.S. Not true. There's a whole department now in just London that's manned by 60 people just to help people try to recover the scammed money. If you go to AARP, you'll see over 100 different financial scams that they are tracking. And now all of them have the tools of AI to do it that much better and much more effectively. Can we use AI? It's scary. Can we use AI to detect AI? Yes. Yes. A whole new industry has come up called AI detectives because apparently there's a digital footprint. And so if you Google or even ask chat now, Tell me some AI detectives, a lot of them are free right now, where you can put in somebody's social media, where you can put in a picture, so you can reverse search the picture to see who it really belongs to. Some of them are so good that you can put it into your match.com or your Tinder profile that you're looking at, and they will tell you if it's real or not or AI generated. So you can see that the good guys have got tools, the bad guys have got tools, and sure. you've just got to understand how to use them. Oh, it's buyer beware, as always, right? Always. Paying attention. Always. We use the tools for, it's like word processors. I remember when we used to type things, and it just it speeds up the process. You know, if I'm producing an article and I can use AI to help me fine-tune it, help me do some research and quickly get to the key points, great. And that goes to your whole point, too, as far as setting up yourself as an authority, establishing your credibility. So when you are online, people are coming to you and you're differentiating yourself authentically from the competition, from the guy who 
isn't. It's kind of like with books. I know you've written, I think, 13 books at least. And, you know, when I show up in a, and I'm going up against another consultant from a work gig point of view, I bring a couple of my books. I had a couple of bestsellers. My mom bought a lot of them. Thank you, mom. And I always bring a couple of copies of my books with me and give them the books. I beat the guy or girl who doesn't have any books. And that's who I beat. But it's really come a long way. I like it. It's exciting to work with. It's fun. As far as getting started, is there a recommended starting path that you recommend for people? I, I think there's a couple things. I think every business person should remember the problem that you're solving, the promise that you're making, the powerful, irresistible offer, the proof that your powerful offer worked, and then the call to action, the PDQ, let's do it now. And that drives the profit. When you're getting into ChatGPT and AI, remember, trust but verify. So we've taken upon ourselves to come up with two tools. One of them is a podcast that we do now every Tuesday, which is just people like you and I talking about what they've learned this week from ChatGPT, AI, Jasper, etc. Right. And then we also offer a seven-week mastery course where we do bite-sized assignments and bite-sized opportunities to learn what you can do with ChatGPT. Now, we focus only on ChatGPT because you can't focus on everything. No. That's not to say that Jasper may not be a better tool for you, but we help you make those decisions along the way. Sure. There's so many. Jasper's good for those to do a lot of writing. They all have specific focuses, right? You can even use your own data and create your FAQs, your chatbots. I mean, that's where it all kind of started from. So I know it's just getting going. As far as companies, those who are you know, the market leaders, if you will, or people want to follow companies from an investment point of view. Is there any recommendations that you have for people there of who's well, going to so win in all of this and who might lose? <laughs> of course, if you had that crystal ball, maybe we could ask ChatGBT who's the winner is going to be. Most of the companies right now are not publicly held, meaning right. the AI-specific companies. So there are watchdogs that are basically saying when these IPOs are coming out, et cetera, it's going to be sort of the dot-com all over again. Where are you going to put your money and is the money going to get lost? Remember this, you got the big boys in here, 10 billion here, 20 billion there, the Elon Musk of the world, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world. So the little guy more than likely is going to be bought up. I mean, one of my right. favorites to watch is Canva. 19-year-old woman, 19 years old, it's now got a market value of a billion dollars. Yeah. How long is she going to wait before she goes public? Now, she doesn't need the money if she's really got a billion-dollar market cap, but somebody's going to come and say, would you like to be part of Google or would you like to be part of Microsoft and make an amazing offer? Yeah. So those are the things to watch, and you could probably put in some of those notifications into your chat box and it will start sending you out some of those reports. Awesome stuff. Hey, James, this was great. I really appreciate spending time. So those who are listening to the program, we'll put all of James' information in the show notes. So if you want to examine the way you think, the way you do your business, the way you deal with change, the way you deal and treat your customers, and you want to learn to think inside the box and start using some of the tools that are available today, particularly ChatGBT and how to employ that and to use that for market differentiation and level up your performance of yourself and your team, James is the one to reach out to and connect to. James, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. 
The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.